episode of Progress, Potential, and Possibilities, discussions with fascinating people designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome, everybody, again to another episode of our show uh, with another fascinating guest uh, involved in creating a better tomorrow for all of us. And, and today we are going to be uh, continuing what I've been referring to as our, our virtual road trip. Uh, and heading uh, around the world uh, to Singapore uh, to visit with none other than Dr. Brian Kennedy, uh, who is a distinguished professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Physiology, Yanglu Lin School of Medicine, National University of Singapore, uh, director of the National University Health System Center for Healthy Aging, uh, professor at the Buck Institute for Research on Aging, adjunct professor, Leonard Davis School of Gerontology at USC, and affiliate faculty, Department of Biochemistry at University of Washington. Uh, with his PhD in biology, uh, Dr. Kennedy uh, from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, uh, has a, a pretty broad focus uh, directed at understanding the biology of aging and ultimately translating uh, various research discoveries into a variety of ways of delaying, detecting, preventing, and treating human aging and associated diseases. Uh, Dr. Kenny's current research projects uh, involve many things involving the systems biology strategies to understand aging uh, and a variety of murine longevity uh, studies and disease models, which he conducts in his lab. Uh, Dr. Kenny has published in over 80 manuscripts in prestigious journals, including Cell, Nature Science, Genes and Development, Proceeding National Academy of Sciences and uh, currently serves as co-editor-in-chief of uh, Aging Cell. Uh, Dr. Brian Kennedy, thanks so much for taking uh, the time to come on the show today. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Most definitely. Uh, you know, uh, Brian, there's not too many people in, in, in uh, sort of the biotech world that don't know uh, who you are, but for um, some of our viewers that are sort of outside of this space, uh, I'd love to just start off as we typically do by handing you the floor for a few minutes just to talk a little bit about yourself, if you can sort of take us back to the beginning, everything from uh, where you grew up to how you developed your interest in biology and ultimately uh, what put you on this journey into the field of uh, aging and healthy longevity. I think that'd be a great way to, uh, to start everything off that we're going to be talking about. Thanks. You know, I, I grew up in, a, I was born in Louisville, Kentucky and grew up in suburban Louisville and, and I've been gone long enough that I've lost my Southern accent, but I promise you that's where I come from. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, my parents were both teachers in math and chemistry. And so I guess it was ordained that I was going to like head down a science path. And uh, so I, you know, I went to Northwestern, but then when I went to graduate school, I was, uh, I started talking to Lenny Garente, who was, uh, you know, a well-known person in the aging field, as you, I'm sure you know. Uh, and uh, at the time, he wasn't working on aging. Uh, he decided that um, uh, he wanted to do something different in yeast cells. And uh, there was another graduate student, Nick Ostriaco, who's now become a priest, by the way. So that's an interesting discussion. Uh, and uh, he and Nick and I thought about what we might want to do in yeast cells. These are single-cell organisms. And so we thought that you know the two craziest things we could think of were programmed cell death and aging. Uh, and we thought that programmed cell death in a single-celled organism might be a little too crazy. Uh, so instead we started studying aging and that was the beginning of it all. It turns out there's a whole field now in programmed cell death and yeast too. So I guess we would have been okay either way. Uh, and uh, so that, you know, those early days, that's where we found the mutations that were in the sirtuins and yeast 
and that that started the whole sirtuin aging craze. Um, ran away from aging, did a postdoc at Harvard Medical School on, on tumor suppression. But when I came back to the University of Washington as an assistant professor, I was really still enamored by studying aging. And the thing I liked about it was that we just knew so little. It was like an open field, open avenue to head down to understand biology. Um, I think even at that time, I still wasn't really thinking about slowing human aging. It was more about how do we understand this process? Uh, and so we went back to yeast cells um, and then we would screen the whole genome for mutations that make yeast live longer. Started working with Matt Caberline, who I'm sure you also know. He also was in, in Lenny Garitti's lab at MIT. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, we hit, hit on the TOR pathway and a bunch of other pathways too. And so that was one of the papers that really put TOR to the forefront of aging. Uh, and so I eventually I decided that I have to get out of yeast at some point, uh, although we still dabble in it. Uh, and so we got into worms and mostly mouse studies in aging. And uh, a lot of my lab still works on that. <laughs> but now we're, we've uh, stopped, uh, or we're not only poking and prodding mice, but we're poking and prodding humans over here in Singapore. Uh, because, uh, you know, we think it's time to really take these interventions that have been developed and test them and validate them in human clinical studies, because I think we're not that far from interventions that can really slow or even reverse aspects of aging. And it's time to find out what works and what doesn't. Absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, Brent, looking through um, sort of the work that your lab uh, currently does, um, and, you know, these two fascinating areas, uh, one that you know, I'd love to start off one, and that's just sort of the principle of uh, the systems biology of aging. And, um, you know, I, I got the, about a year ago, I got to spend about 90 minutes with uh, with Lee Hood uh, at, over at the Syst Institute for Systems Biology, sort of the father of this space. Um, and, you know, I heard you talk about uh, sort of the, uh, the systems biology of aging and sort of this concept of the preservation of the homeostatic networks. Uh, these networks that we don't normally think too much about when we think in the traditional pharma sense of looking at a specific target or whatnot against a specific disease. But a lot of the ways these uh, very complex mechanisms, some that you just mentioned in terms of uh, TOR and, and so forth, uh, really uh, aren't isolated by themselves, but interact in really fantastic ways uh, in, all, in all sorts of directions. Talk a little bit about some of the things that you look at in terms of the systems biology of aging and what some of the areas you think maybe are a little underexplored in regard to systems biology? Well, I think you, you've touched upon really, I think one of the conundrums still in the field. So, you know, about seven or eight years ago, there were two papers published, one, one on hallmarks of aging and one on pillars of aging, the both reviews. I was involved in one of them and, and we more or less there were a large number of professors on both papers. It was kind of a consensus in the field that there are certain pathways that modulate aging. And these are things like adult stem cell function. Uh, the, the pillars and hallmarks don't completely overline, but they kind of do, you know, in, inflammation, uh, cellular damage, that sort of thing. Uh, and so then the next thing you can do is you can say that we have some small molecules that target pathways that, that we know extend lifespan and health span as well in animals. So you might assume that they hit one of those pathways. Uh, and so people have been looking at each pathway and 
the, of aging and to say which one does rapamycin hit. Now we know rapamycin inhibits the TOR pathway, right? That's the direct target. But the question is what's downstream of that? Is it reduced damage, better repair of damage, reduced inflammation, et cetera, et cetera. And the problem is you can read out the benefits of inhibiting TOR in all of these pathways. Uh, and that's true with sirtuins. It's true with, uh, you know, AKG, I think, which we're getting excited about. And, and so the, what does that mean? Does that mean you have molecules that magically touch everything related to aging? Uh, it seems unlikely. And so that led me to think about this idea that, you know, we can call things different pillars of aging, but, but really they're connected to each other. And so, you know, if you have altered metabolism, that affects inflammation. And if you have inflammation, that causes cells to senesce. And if you have, uh, you know, and that causes damage to cells. And so, you know, you can tie everything together in a network. Uh, and, and so that's how I think of it, that you have this network that preserves um, homeostasis in the body. And so things are going wrong as we get older, uh, but we're still highly functional because, you know, the, this network compensates for the damage that's happening. It keeps us uh, active. It keeps us disease-free. But when enough uh, aspects of that network fall apart, uh, then, then we start to have chronic diseases. Uh, so I think that the way we think, the way I think about it is that uh, the TOR pathway is at one of these nodes in the network. So you can read out the inhibition of TOR in all the different pillars that, that are on the edges of the network. But the, the, the truth is that the, the things that are really affecting aging are involved in network preservation. And I think that it's easy to say that, uh, but it's hard to understand what that means. And so we're grappling with that concept now. What does it mean to be, what is this network? What, what does it mean to be a node in this network and how do we define that? And, you know, you, um, obviously you spend a lot of time uh, over the years uh, is, you know, working with yeast, working with the mouse models. Um, you're, you know, you, you, uh, you published a lot with, with you saying Matt Caberline and um, uh, who's active with dogs, uh, Andre Gukov also uh, in the space. Um, I, you know, I, I spent a lot of time sort of going through your publications and I, I was fascinated by one that uh, popped up recently um, called Non-Traditional Models, The World Goes Bats, Living Longer and Tolerating Viruses, which uh, you did work with Vera Gobernova on this one. Uh, I had her on uh, a couple of months ago, of course, talking about naked mole rats. I also had Shelley Buffenstein from Calico on, who's also a naked mole rat person. Um, I'm interested in, you know, obviously we got the mice and the dogs and everything fine. Um, humans, fine. And, and we're working in that direction. Uh, but there's a lot of other stuff there. Uh, and and Shelly uh, Buffenstein from Calico is very fond of saying, look, there's a lot of other animals that live really long that we should be studying and learning from, in addition to the naked mole rat. Um, talk a little bit about stuff that you're doing outside of the traditional animal models, because some of these species like the bats and, and you know, their uh, heat shock protein, uh, you know, defense and, and all the stuff that, that makes them so uh, tolerated to viruses, which helps with their longevity as well. Uh, talk a little about this, if you would, and some of the things you're interested in studying there. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's fascinating, these bats. Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, everybody kind of is paying attention to them now. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I, the, uh, and, and, you know, they're endemic to, to everywhere in the world, really, but they're 
you know, there are many different species here in Southeast Asia. So there's a lot of interest in, in, in the bats here. And of course they're carriers for all kinds of disease. And so the, the truth of the story is that Vera and her husband, Andre, uh, Selwanov, they're, they're uh, visiting professors here in the US. And so they were, they were visiting us when the pandemic really hit in Malaysia and Singapore and everybody got nervous. They were actually, in, we were all taking a weekend at a resort in Malaysia and Singapore said, you better get back to Singapore or we, you may not get back. <laughs> so we all came back and they were planning to spend an extra few days in Malaysia and they had to they had to change their plans and they were kind of just stuck in lockdown in, in, in my apartment. And so we thought, how can we make use of this time? And so that, then we came up with the idea of writing a review on bats. Now Vera does a lot more work on that than I do, but we have collaborators here uh, that have bat colonies as well. And so we're very interested in this. These bats live a very long time, some of them up to 40 years. And they're, they're amazing species. You can I go for runs at night in Singapore and there are bats all over the place. And if you go to the right place, you can see these fruit bats that are just huge flying right above your head. Um, so they, they have very high metabolism. Uh, they have a very interesting lifestyle. You wouldn't look at these things and say, this is something that's gonna live a long time and yet they do. And it really, I think ties in somewhat to senescence because they have alterations in their innate immune system and so their cells, uh, when they get uh, cytoplasmic DNA, which happens in vi- or cytoplasmic nucleic acids, which happens in in viruses infections a lot, you know, our our cells go crazy evoke innate immunity. You know, you can get cytokine storms and all kinds of problems as a result of that. Their cells just tolerate it, so they have mutations that allow them to tolerate these viruses, and so they may live for 20 years with the coronavirus, you know, and, and so the, uh, uh, and we think there's some kind of link between these changes in innate immunity and the ability to live a long time. Also, bats also have metabolic changes that are, um, may, have, may allow them to live a long time too. So we wanna start to interrogate those things and figure out um, uh, which, which ones are most relevant to aging and how that relates to innate immunity. And- Brian, somebody else that I, I had the, the opportunity to spend time with about a year ago, uh, Dr. Victor Zhao of the, the National Academy of Medicine, um, talking about the Healthy Longevity uh, Global Competition. Um, I noticed that you and your team uh, were an awardee recently. Uh, the, the title of uh, the work that you're gonna be uh, doing under the, the NAM program, uh, studying epigenetic aging and telomere length as possible biologic predictors for, for healthy aging. Um, and it, it's then sort of the sublight is the Singapore Chinese Health Study. Uh, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about um, this model. You know, obviously we have these interesting new models nowadays and the, the healthy longevity uh, competition is one of them. Um, you know, I'd love just to talk about uh, how you're looking at some of these new models uh, like the NAM model uh, and, and sort of funding some of this earlier research that's not sort of typically funded by your VCs or for other types of investors. And then if you could also just talk a little bit about um, some of the, because uh, it looks like you're looking at sort of the, in this case, sort of the, the biomarkers, sort of the systems biomarkers, not just one thing, but how a lot of these things interact like with your, your network approach uh, to aging. Talk a little bit about what you're gonna be looking at specifically in terms of, of how these different biomarkers sort of uh, interact together in this population. Yeah, so first of all, I think the National Academy of Medicine grants are great and they're, um, 
it's, they were in the United States originally, but several other countries have picked up on this, including Singapore. And so there were, I think, 13 awards last year uh, for grants. Uh, and, uh, and a lot of them come from our Healthy Longevity Program here in the U.S., so I know about a number of them. Uh, and uh, so we're excited about that. And it's kind of a pyramid structure. So you get a, a small grant to start and you do some initial pilot work and then you apply for a second round of grants that are uh, $500,000 in the US. And then there'll be an award or at least one award of a $5 million grant at the end of this if the, if the intermediate studies go well. So um, it's a different kind of structure for funding, but I think it's, a, it's exciting. Um, the, uh, and I've been involved in the review also in the American grants. And so it, it's, I've seen a lot of the things that have come through and there's some really innovative ideas. The goal is to really uh, have ideas that are not easily fundable through the NIH because they may be uh, earlier stage or, or more risky, but also to develop things that have value, uh, for aging people in the near future. Uh, and so there are they're uh, things that are funded on all aspects of aging, not just on, uh, you know, altering the biology of aging. Uh, so I think that it, it, it's part of a, a movement to, that's really led to funding of aging research in the last five to 10 years. And I think that's really exciting. So private sector money has gone way up, as you know, uh, and there are now different mechanisms for uh, public sector funding or, as well. So it's really... Finally, after years of begging for money, I think the aging field has a little bit more access to money, although I would still argue it's heavily underfunded from the government side. Um, yeah, the, so what we're trying to do over here, that, that, that grant is part of a big picture of looking at a whole range of different biomarkers of aging together in the same people in Singapore, because there, you know, we all think about interventions to slow aging as the great breakthroughs in the aging field. And that's certainly one area where great breakthroughs have been made. But uh, we should also consider these new biomarkers as great breakthroughs because before that, there was really no way in a relatively, in a non-frail person, there was really no way to effectively measure biologic aging. And now we have a number of candidate approaches to do that. Um, DNA methylation is something you've probably talked about on previous shows um, that was developed in part, uh, large part by Steve Horvath. Uh, now there are many different methylation clocks that predict biologic age. Uh, that's probably the, the leading example right now, but we're also uh, using uh, more standard assays of pathways like telomere length or tor signaling. Uh, we're looking at inflammation. We're looking at, we can uh, recreate a biologic age from facial patterns. And so we're working with Jackie Han at Peking University on that. We're working with a company called Jero to look at some of their biomarkers of aging. So what we wanna do is to measure a lot of different biomarkers in the same people, figure out how much these different markers overlap with each other and how do we put them together to get a whole holistic picture of a person's aging. And ideally, how do we do it for a relatively low cost? Because I would like to scale this into the Singapore population and stratify uh, the rate of aging of everyone when they hit, say, a particular age, 40, 45, 50, something like that. And then the other value to this is that these biomarkers can be used as endpoints for the interventions. So when we do a study, a clinical study with something like AKG or 
an NAD precursor or exercise, uh, we can use these biomarkers to see if we're having an impact. And, and hopefully uh, we, these interventions will actually reverse biologic age using these biomarkers. And there's, there are a few, a few publications which suggest that might be possible, but it's still very, very early days. So one of the really exciting things in the field now is to putting the interventions together with the markers of aging and seeing how they interact with each other. And, you know, this is going to be, as, as you were saying, really critical, uh, especially in sort of the non or the younger uh, non-frail population. Uh, you've been very successful in, in, in pushing, as you were saying earlier, on some of these uh, initial human uh, experiences. And I'd love to get sort of your thoughts on, because you're in a part of the world right now where there's been, let's say, a little more creativity uh, with regard to accelerating uh, some of these novel therapies. Obviously, we think of conditional uh, stem cell approvals in Japan. Uh, China has been having some interesting sort of uh, free zones uh, to to uh, for uh, sort of experimental therapies to move a little quicker. Uh, and then, you know, I have some, you know, still still have some friends in the pharmaceutical industry and in certain companies where they're, they have these weird sort of phase zero uh, clinical study groups where they, once again, look at interesting ways to, you know, to, to test uh, on an initial population of 10 people here and 15 people here. Um, you're seeing a lot of interesting movement um, on the, uh, the clinical development front uh, in other areas. And then, you know, obviously, uh, think about how some of these tools you were just mentioning before can help sort of uh, balance uh, and, and sort of give more confidence within some of these novel models that, hey, things are happening in this sort of early phase zero slash one period of time. Yeah, you know, it's, it's things are changing. I mean, I've been talking to pharmaceutical companies for 15 years about targeting aging. And there are two problems with this. One, as you know, that the FDA doesn't recognize it as a disease indication. And so you know, a, a company like a, a pharmaceutical, well, a big pharma, I won't mention any specific ones, a big pharmaceutical company, you know, the bottom line is what matters to them. And they have a tried and true method of making money. Uh, and right. that is to uh, develop therapies for disease indications uh, and get reimbursement for treating sick people. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I, you know, I, I want to treat sick people too. Uh, but uh, the idea of preventing aging is complicated for them because it doesn't fit their reimbursement model uh, and it doesn't, um, uh, it also could take away from their therapies if we're keeping people healthy. You know, the, the, the complicated cancer therapies are not going to have as much value. So uh, they haven't led the way in the aging field like you would hope. And I think just now in the last few years, they're starting to look into this. Uh, but they're still not leading the way. You know, what, what's happening is that small biotech companies are getting started. We, we started several of them at the Buck Institute, and we're doing that over here in Singapore as well. Um, and a number, a lot of other people are as well. And so now you have probably 50 or more different small biotech companies thinking about aging. Some of those are going to be successful, start to have really, really great preclinical data, um, get to the clinic, maybe with a disease indication or maybe looking at aging directly. Uh, and eventually pharma will swallow them up and, you know, take it to the end of the game, I think. But um, right now that's where the innovation is happening, not just in academic labs, but in these small companies. 
And then on the other side, you have things like stem cell replacement therapy, which I'm very interested in right now. Um, we're starting to think about how to look at people that get mesenchymal stem cell um, uh, by IV uh, and see if that has an impact on aging. But that, you know, was slowed down dramatically when the Bush administration decided stem cells were persona non grata uh, in the U.S. And of course, now people are using IPS cells or MSCs derived from umbilical cord or things like that. And it's not mostly not embryonic stem cells, at least it's in the aging field. But, you know, what happened is all these clinics developed outside the U.S. and we never had the the really good placebo-controlled clinical studies to figure out what mesenchymal stem cells do when they put in your when they're put in your body. So um, I think there's a lot of promise in regenerative medicine, and we want to sort of go back now to to try to evaluate, you know, what are the benefits of having mesenchymal stem cells derived from umbilical cord or from your own fat or from wherever put back in your body. How does that impact aging? Uh, and there are other areas too that I think that need research, like natural products we've gotten into very in the last few years because you know it's the wild west. This you know when you go into a GNC store and there's lots of things that say anti-aging. I really don't know what works and what doesn't. I don't know what's in the bottle half the time. And so the the sort of basic biology of aging field that I've been in has typically said oh, it's all bad science, we're not gonna pay attention to that. But I think that's also the wrong approach. Uh, I think some of these things are gonna work, uh, and, uh, but we have to go back and do the preclinical research and the clinical research to validate what's working and what's not. So um, what, what we're trying to do now is to be, especially on the academic side, is be as agnostic as possible. Uh, let's look at many different kinds of interventions. Uh, compare them to biomarkers and in some cases to disease onset and and see you know what what works in what context in which people and I think that's the the next step toward getting widespread adoption of longevity based therapies. Yeah completely agree with you on that. Um, right hitting on something you just mentioned before and 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 that was the um, the topic of you know sort of the FDA uh, not um, recognizing aging as a disease yet. Uh, obviously, there's initiatives like the TAME trial and so forth that's yeah. trying to shift things. I was just, you know, the, the question I always have about this one, I don't have an opinion one way or another, but, um, you know, thinking back to my time, I, I was at the FDA a few times in my career, um, and I spent some time looking at some of the drugs that were recently uh, approved in the last year. And you look at the indications and, you know, it's not like, uh, here's one, uh, this is for a Sanofi Aventis product called Sarkleza, uh, which is for uh, multiple myeloma. Uh, so the indication that they got from the FDA uh, to be used in combination with carvazolamab and dexamethasone for the treatment of adult patients with relapsed refractory multimyeloma who have received one to three prior lines of therapy that did not work or are no longer working. Um, and I say to myself, um, the FDA, even if they ultimately approve, you know, it comes come around, I worry in some ways that aging <laughs> might get fractionated in a strange way in an indication. And yeah, I think back to sort of, remember those original Cheerios sort of claims, like originally Cheerios are good for your cholesterol, but, you know, now the, the claim is, you know, Cheerios, if you eat four bowls and you eat a healthy diet, and you actually, it might be good for your cholesterol. Um, 
what, what do you think is going to happen ultimately if uh, FDA or EMEA or whatever actually comes up with an aging indication? What do you think it's going to look like? Yeah, I, I don't know. And uh, I have some of your same concerns. I, and I'm very supportive of the TAME trial with metformin also, but it's, it's a huge trial. It costs tens of millions of dollars. And, and, and I don't know if metformin is better or worse than rapamycin or AKG or anything else. Uh, and what we'd like to know is how do they compare to each other? And that's why we chose to go after shorter term studies with biomarkers here in Singapore. Also, it's just not a big enough country to do a trial with 3,000 people at you know, 14 different sites there. That would, you know, Singapore can't do that. So the, uh, I, I think that doing these kinds of health span and disease prevention trials are interesting. And that's one path toward getting widespread adoption, but it's not the only one. And I also would comment on the FDA, you know, we don't, the FDA is not there to innovate. Right. What, what we're talking about here is a medical revolution. We're talking about doing healthcare for a change and not sick care. Uh, and that has all kinds of connotations, both in the healthcare world and in the, uh, the world at large. Uh, and, and so I think that you, you can talk to the FDA, but you can't expect them to solve your problems for you. I think what we have to do is create problems for them. And that's doing clinical studies that show that this approach is, is valid, that it works, and that it, and then combining with the economists to prove that this has much more economic benefit than treating, you know, diseases one at a time. Uh, and then forcing them to take notice and react to it. I think that's how you get regulatory change. You don't, the regula regulators don't make the change. They get forced to make the change. Right. So uh, that's our approach. This, this create problems for regulators and make them solve them. Uh, and I, I agree with you that um, the, the system right now is not set up uh, to deal with something as big as aging. And, you know, it could be, and if they're saying, well, we approve this longevity medicine for people that are rapidly aging in the Delaware climate, you know, <laughs> you know it, it's not going to solve the problems we're looking for. And having said that, you know, I don't think any intervention is going to work in every individual's individual. And we do have to understand which type of people react to which longevity interventions. And so that personalization is important to add toward. Um, but you know, this take even a step back. You know, every time I walk through NUS, there's a big uh, copy on, in, you know, a sculpture of the uh, hip, uh, Hippocratic Oath, right? So, it, it, you know, and when, when you think of Hippocratic Oath, you hear first do no harm, right? Mm -hmm. So this is, um, well, first of all, it was a revolutionary idea of its time. Uh, and I still agree with the concept, but I think we misinterpret the concept. You know, we interpret the concept to be wait till somebody gets sick and then treat them in ways that are, you know, clinically validated to help them. Uh, and so the good outweighs the bad. Uh, and we also interpret that to mean that if somebody's healthy, you shouldn't do anything to them. And I think that second component is wrong. You know, I think medicine and healthcare should be a lifelong process. And just because somebody's 40 and they don't have any clinically defined condition, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be thinking of interventions and strategies to uh, make them biologically 35, to make the to make them uh, healthy much longer in their life so they don't get sick later, 
to treat them now when it's easier to do it than, than it is to wait till they have Alzheimer's disease and it's much more difficult to do it. So I think by not helping people at certain stages of life, you are harming them. And we need to really think about what that oath means and, and whether we shouldn't be working with people on a much more consistent basis before they get sick uh, to try to keep them healthy. That to me is what do no harm means. Right. You've mentioned um, AKG or alpha ketoglutarate a bit uh, today. I know this has been um, not just a, an interesting research uh, program of yours, but also some commercial initiatives. Talk a little bit about what AKG is for, for those that may be unfamiliar with it and how you got uh, interested in it, because it's a natural product, right? Yeah, it's, uh, your body makes tons of it. It's in the TCA cycle. Um, okay. And so it's a, in central metabolism. Uh, the problem is you're, you know, you have less of it as you get older. Uh, so in, in some ways it parallels the NAD story, which I guess you probably talked about in previous shows, right? This is a, another metabolite that goes down with age. Uh, and when you supplement it back up, it seems to have some benefits. Um, the difference is here, we get a, a really big impact on uh, compression and morbidity with AKG. So when we treat animals, they live about 10% longer, but they're healthy and and that's judged by this uh, mouse frailty index much, much longer. So you get animals that are doing really, really well and then drop off at the end very quickly. And that, that's a much better way to go than to have debilitating diseases for 20 years uh, in humans. Uh, and so of course we're doing clinical studies now in humans to see if that translates. But coming back to AKG, um, you know, it does a lot of, it probably participates in about a thousand different reactions in cells. So it, it's a little bit of a challenge to figure out which ones are important. Uh, but we found that when we give it to animals orally, uh, that they, um, you know, their adult stem cells function better, their metabolism's better. Uh, they have uh, better skin and coat condition. Uh, they don't lose their hair, for instance. Uh, they don't get kyphosis as badly. So there's a whole range of aging parameters that are delayed uh, with, with AKG. So uh, this is a very safe reagent. It's been given at very high doses in clinical studies uh, for other purposes, not for aging and with no adverse events or side effects. Uh, so we're very excited about it. A company called uh, Ponce de Leon Health funded uh, uh, Gordon Lithgow in my lab at the Buck to do these studies. And we looked at a lot of different natural products, first in worms and then in mice. And AKG is the one that really jumped out of this as having a big effect. Uh, it was reported in Nature uh, by another group and around 2014, I think, showing that it had a big impact on aging in worms. Uh, but there's a lot of things that are reported in, in animals to have effects on aging and they're not so easy to repeat. AKG was really easy for Gordon to repeat in worms. Uh, and then we moved to the mice and found you know, these exciting results as well. So. Now we're gearing up to, the, the company is doing clinical studies with their product, which is Rejuvent. And that, but that's uh, sustained release alpha ketoglutarate plus a vitamin um, that, that, that in our studies in mice had synergistic effects on frailty. Uh, but what we want to do over in Singapore is to work academically just with the sustained release AKG and try to get a mechanistic understanding of what it's doing to human aging. And so we'll hopefully be starting those studies soon over here. Uh, and 
you know, there are lots of different candidate mechanisms for why AKG might affect aging. And we want to systemic, systematically go through those and try to sort out which ones are most important. Very nice. Um, Brian, another fascinating paper of yours that, that stood out to me, um, and, and I think this, you know, goes to sort of um, your profile as being, you know, looking at this whole area very holistically, um, was a paper entitled Effects of Choral Singing uh, versus Health Education on Cognitive Decline in Aging Randomized Controlled Trial. Um, obviously, you know, there, there's sort of the segment of, this, the, of the longevity biotech world that thinks all we're going to need is some pills and, and, and stem cells. Uh, and there's some other folks that think, nah, there's a much more integrated set of stuff we're going to need to do. Talk about what you learned uh, in this particular study and why you looked at it. Yeah, um, well, I'm not the principal investigator on that study. I helped out with it over at Singapore, but I'm happy to talk about it. And I think that the, uh, the conclusion that people are going to get from listening to this podcast is that I have attention deficit disorder, <laughs> which may actually be true. I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, but what, you know, one of the things I'm over here to do is to enable scientists to study aging. So if people come with good ideas, uh, we want to help them out and help them with design of studies, help them without endpoints. Uh, and look, lifestyle interventions work. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, my, I'm more into exercise and, and diet in terms of research and, uh, and life than I, I really can't stand choral singing, but to be honest, full disclosure. Uh, but you know, the, the, there's another thing that's really known to impact aging and that's social connectivity. Right. Uh, and so if you bring, and this is more, this is not a study in 50 year olds. This is a study in older people that have early stage dementia or, or cognitive, uh, myocognitive impairment. Uh, and the idea is to bring them together, have them participate in singing, which is also on its own has been shown to have some benefits uh, and uh, also get them connected and, and interacting and uh, see what the impact that has on later stages of aging. So, you know, there's preventing aging and managing aging. To me, this is more in the management side, uh, but that's still important. You need to improve life quality for people and increasing their connectivity, having them participate in, in these activities is, seems to be uh, beneficial. So I don't think we're gonna live forever uh, by uh, uh, choral singing. In fact, it might drive me crazy <laughs> long before that. <laughs> Personally, I wanted to do I, I wanted to do like rock music, but that, that didn't. That, I got outvoted. The the uh, the uh, but the um, I think it does help people these kinds of uh, uh, lifestyle modifications and interventions and participation in these things. You know, a lot of people in Asia when they get older, they live with their parent or their son, their kids. Yeah. And they get they become very isolated, particularly if they can't get out of the house and get around. And so, anything that gets people moving around and, and interacting with each other, I think, is good. There's another study on gardening that uh, we're we're helping out with as well. So, uh, again, I, I have a very broad you know view on that we need to change all of society to to better suit the aging population and. And so I'm, I'm interested in any way you can do that. I mean, most of my direct research is on small molecules of drugs. And, and, and I would much rather prefer just not to get dementia than to have to uh, uh, manage it. But at the same time, we have a, 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 you know, a, a dementia pandemic going yeah. on as well. And so we need to do something to help people uh, at, at all stages of aging. Yeah, I was um, 
that's where I was going with that one. And I think it's uh, it, it just a, a side note. It's extremely important, uh, not just for dementia, but just all, you know, the, sort of the whole area of delirium as well, which is sort of dementia's evil cousin. Um, yeah. And some of these uh, we don't normally think about, but um, yeah. Well, we're, and, we're doing a study kind of on that too, that, you know, post-surgical delirium yeah. is a major complication for the aging population. And so, yeah. One of the great things here at NUS is we have a great hospital, great clinic, uh, 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 clinicians who are interested in doing science. And so uh, we want to use these aging biomarkers before people go into surgery. We're going to start with elective surgeries because it's more complicated with acute needs. But um, we're, and, and we want to see if biologic aging predicts surgical outcome, uh, mm -hmm. risk, of, risk of delirium post-surgery, uh, recovery time. Yep. If somebody's getting knee replacement, you know, there's some people get knee replacement and they go through the rehab, everything works and they go back to their relatively normal lives and other people really never get that mobility back after knee replacement. And it's hard to predict who's going to, who's going to respond and who isn't. So are these biologic aging markers may have value in those contexts as well. You know, yep. we can uh, assess people and say, all right, you know, the, based on your biologic age, you're eight years younger than your chronologic age. If we do this knee replacement, you know, we think you're going to do very well. I mean, that's a hypothesis. We don't know if it'll work or not, but we're trying that constantly. So, uh, Brian, if, if someone held a gun to my head and I had to pick my favorite Brian Kennedy paper, um, <laughs> The the one that I have to select, uh, and I'll tell you, you're going to pick one in a minute that I can't remember. So be careful. No, no, you'll remember this one, <laughs> and this one I really enjoyed for a variety of reasons. We can get it offline, but uh, spatiotemporal correlates of gene expression and cortical morphology across lifespan and aging. Uh, and, and in this paper, with your uh, you and your co-authors, you go into the developmental theory of aging, and basically, you know, looking at Aging is sort of this reverse process uh, of development. And, you know, I, I always, you know, I get into this discussion, you know, a lot of people are unaware of the fact that, you know, as we are developing in our mother's wombs, um, our brains, you know, full of beta amyloid and tau and preselin-1 and, 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 you know, so the whole, you know, you can look at the, the fetal brain and it looks, you know, just as diseased as the, the elderly dementia brain. Um, but we don't develop Alzheimer's and Parkinson's in the womb. Um, talk a little bit about, in general, sort of the developmental theory of aging. Uh, are you working a lot on that? Obviously, you work on a lot of stuff, but uh, is this a, a hot area for parts of your team or other areas of, of the university? Because this one is kind of near and dear to my heart for, for a variety of reasons. So I'll get into that offline. Uh, there's a professor here, uh, named Chu Anqi, whose name I never get right, but I'm, I do my best. And uh, she's been excited about this. She does a lot of artificial intelligence and uh, bioinformatic analysis. And so she was able to get access to transcriptomics and also images of brains from uh, people that are uh, at all ages of life. Uh, and so she's been doing this kind of analysis. And it, it really reinforces this concept that, you know, aging is like, the changes that happen during old age sort of, I, I'm going to say it the opposite way of you did, which is that the changes that happen in old age sort of uh, recapitulate sort of in reverse developmental processes. And so the transcription profile of really late stage brains look 
have some characteristics that look like uh, juvenile brains. And so uh, uh, you can view that, I think, multiple ways. I mean, one way you can view it is that development is a process of building complexity. Uh, and, and that uh, when that process falls apart in old age, you sort of, it falls apart and, you know, the layers get pulled back off and you get this, this is sort of the passive view of it, that the layers get pulled back off and that the, um, uh, that just happens to fall in some path that mimics how they got put back on. So it looks like that you're recapitulating development or that there's some loss of uh, organization that and that noise is more similar to what's going on developmentally. Um, it may be more interesting than that. It could be that in the aging brain, there are a lot of signals uh, for rejuvenation. There are a lot of, uh, you know, the, the damage that's happened is telling you to like, you got to go back and rebuild things to fix them. And so this, the, the cells are trying to do that, but mm -hmm. the, the, the capacity is not there. And so you get that sort of developmental profile as well. Um, I think it's a fascinating conceptual thing to think about. And we, this study was done in the brain, but it's not, could be, could be done anywhere in the body. Uh, and uh, there's really, we're still at this sort of stage where we're identifying this process uh, and we don't understand mechanistically what it means yet, but uh, it, it, these changes that happen with old age, I think are very fascinating. And, and the fact that they overlap somewhat with development is exciting as well. You know, even senescence, right? There, there, you know, there's a role sure. for senescence during development. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody thought about that in, you know, until recently. That's, and why we so, don't, that's why we don't have frog hands <laughs> and tails. <laughs> Yeah, but, but regenerating things would be good. So, yeah. so. <laughs> maybe yeah, that's uh, that's how I was going down that path as well. But yeah, it's uh, I uh, uh, if if I could bring down a, a trillion dollars from the uh, uh, from the heavens uh, right now, I'd uh, I'd give it to you and say put some of it into the the DTA. That's uh, it's a fascinating. Yeah. This, is, this brings up a point that I that I want to hit on that that I think that is a problem right now is that things have gotten so translational, you know, and, and not just in aging. I mean, probably aging is not a good example even, but in in, in disease based research, things are so translational. Even in our age, what they you know they they're really interested in how your project is going to lead to a new therapy. Yeah. Um, and, and I, of course, we want to help people. <laughs> I, I like to live longer. I, I'm not immune to this. But the, I'm really worried about where funding for basic science is going. And there are big, big questions in aging that we don't know the answer to. We just raised one of them. You know, It's getting really hard to get funded to do yeast research anymore. And I feel bad because there are a lot of exciting ideas and young scientists that want to study them. Uh, that it's really hard to get funded. And you talk about systems biology, you know, I would argue that a mouse is still a bit complicated for that because you've got lots of different cell types that are all talking to each other, cell autonomous and cell non-autonomous. If you really wanted to understand aging at a, at, at a complete level, we should be doing it in yeast cells because there we have one cell and we can really interrogate how all these different uh, proteins are are talking to each other in ways that are you can't do anywhere else and and i, I really think we're selling ourselves short in the long run if we don't fund that basic science and and, and 
it's happening everywhere, uh, but uh, this move toward translation. And there are good elements of it, but it, we shouldn't run away from the, the, the beginning of the pipeline, because that's where the big discoveries happen. That's where we uh, redefine what we are as biologically as human beings. And, and, and if we don't put money into that, we're going to stop learning new things. Yeah. Yeah, man, I completely agree with that. And uh, I, uh, I had uh, about a couple months ago, I had Mike Levin on from um, from Tufts, who's you know he's uh, he leads the uh, uh, the cry out in the sort of this area of uh, sort of bioelectricity and tissue patterning and uh, complex form. Uh, how how you know because form and shape, and, you know, this isn't dictated by a specific gene. There's, there's much more sort of complex biophysical stuff going on. And you sort of think back that, you know, a hundred years ago, you know, we were talking about this electricity stuff and, and then it just went away. But now, you know, here we are at 2021 and now, hey, it has a place. <laughs> and we also, you know, I, I think we forget too much, unfortunately, about uh, what happens in sort of the history of, of the sciences, especially the biomedical sciences. And we really need to uh, not just focus on everything that's going on, but also on maybe things that were left behind <laughs> and revisit a yeah. lot of it. Uh, natural I mean, products, okay. as you were pointing out, extremely important. And, and it's also like just stuff that we, we do every day now and take for granted. The internet didn't, we didn't, the technology to generate the internet didn't right. come from somebody saying, I want to make an internet, you know. And so d asking exciting questions and, uh, you know, then following the results can lead to very serendipitous uh, benefits uh, that, that have huge impacts on humanity. Where would we be? in this pandemic if we didn't have the internet. Um, although I, Zoom is starting to drive me crazy to be honest, but still it, without it, we, I, I did a two week quarantine when I came back to Singapore recently in a hotel room. And imagine if you didn't have cell phones and the internet right. where you would be. Uh, and so these things, you know, there's serendipity behind every discovery. There's people asking basic questions behind every discovery. And sometimes the questions they're asking have nothing to do with the ultimate right. uh, technology that derives from it. And if we don't let people ask those interesting questions, we're in trouble. Yeah. Um, Brian, you know, it's, it's been an awesome time talking to you. Any, um, any other things that I didn't touch on that you might want to mention? Anyone you want to shout out to? I'll give you the floor on the way out. Uh, but if, if I, I try to hit on all the exciting stuff, but if there's things I missed, please take the floor for a few minutes and uh, and give us a final message if you would. Yeah, no, I, I think we, we covered most of that. I, I, just, I would, you know, having just talked about basic science, let me come back and end on the translational aspects of aging because I really think we're at the, you know, people have been thinking about slowing the aging process for thousands of years. And um, I think this is going to be the generation and maybe even the decade where it happens. And so the, I, it's really exciting times in this field. You know, there are more and more people that are investing. There's, there's interest from all aspects of society. The general public is starting to take notice. You know, the government is starting to pay attention. And Singapore is very progressive about tackling its aging problem. So I'm really excited. I think big things are going to happen and in the not too distant future. And I, I really hope that we can look back and say that, you know, we're taking interventions that extend our health span. Uh, and it's something that almost everybody listening to this show will have access to. So uh, I'm excited about where things are going. There's a lot of validation and there's still some hurdles to clear, I'm sure. 
but I, I really feel like we're we're getting to the point where we can really do some good. Outstanding message. Um, really great time talking to you, Brian. Um, for everybody that is either going to be listening to this show on the podcast or watching on the YouTube network, uh, you've been listening to Dr. Brian Kennedy, Distinguished Professor, Department of Biochemistry and Physiology, National University of Singapore, Director of the National University Health System Center for Healthy Aging, Professor of the Buck Institute for Research on Aging, Adjunct Professor Leonard Davis School of Gerontology at USC, and Affiliate Professor, Department of Biochemistry, University of Washington. Uh, Brian, it's, it's really been an honor talking to you. I want to take time to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to come on the show. Uh, thank you for everything you're doing there and around the world. And um, as we say here on this show, uh, thank you for helping to create a better tomorrow for all of us to do the work you're doing. Uh, it's very well, inspirational. You. you know, helping disseminate this knowledge is really important. So I appreciate what you're doing too. Thanks a lot. Absolutely.